This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Since 1936, the National Wildlife Federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws in American history and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are NWF Outdoors. Welcome to the NWF Outdoors podcast. This is Aaron Kindle with my co-host Drew Youngdike. And today we're lucky to talk to Jason Baldez, uh, who works for NWF out of our Northern Rockies region. Incredible guy I've gotten to know over time here. I'm really happy we're, we have him on today. How are you doing today, Jason? I'm doing pretty well. I'm glad to be joining you guys today and uh, appreciate the opportunity to visit with you. Great. How about you, Drew? How are you doing today? I'm doing great. You know, I got to spend all day yesterday on the on the water, um, which is always better than a than a full day of Zoom calls. And uh, this this past weekend, actually, my my son and I, who's 16 months old, um, I like to fish with him in a backpack, and we got our first fish together. I caught him a little six inch uh, bluegill. So that was his first look at a live fish. Pretty special moment, and I, I can just count down until he's old enough to actually catch his first fish on his own. So I'm pretty happy. Nice. On Father's Day, no less. Awesome. And Jason, often when we start this podcast, we kind of talk about what we've been doing for the past week outdoors, hunting, fishing, hiking, whatever we do. And uh, you want to tell us, you, you've been getting out in the woods at all lately? Oh, I try to when I can. I, I had a... Uh... We've got the Little Wind River here real close by, and last night we tried to go catch a fish a little bit late, so they weren't we weren't hitting too good. But you know, uh, here on the reservation, we we've got access to to several fishing spots, and of course during hunting season, hunting is real close by, and we we do try to spend as much time camping, hunting, and fishing as as, as much as possible when uh, when the work isn't isn't calling you know uh also got 30 head of horses so when when i'm not hunting and fishing I've, I've got horses to play around with that's a handful yeah well uh uh luckily for me i'm we're entering the glory season here in in south central southwestern colorado for fishing our river is finally coming down and the fish are really hot on big dry flies so I spent a little time. I, I hiked to a high mountain lake and caught cutthroats this past Saturday and then floated the river on Sunday and have just had some exceptional fishing lately. So really happy for that and, and just wish I was fishing just about every day right now. So uh, let's just start, Jason. Tell us tell us a little bit about, you know, who you are, where you're from, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll dive into your work, but tell us a little bit about yourself personally. Yeah, so... Um... I'm a member of the Eastern Shoshone tribe. I, I grew up here in Fort Washakie on the Wind River Indian Reservation. I uh, got my undergraduate and graduate degrees in land resources and environmental sciences from Montana State University. Um, I'm currently the tribal buffalo coordinator for the National Wildlife Federation Tribal Partnerships Program. And I also sit on the board of directors for the Intertribal Buffalo Council. Uh, a membership of 69 tribes working on bison restoration to our communities. 
and uh, I serve as the Eastern Shoshone Tribes Buffalo representative. So over the years of kind of overseeing the project uh, to restore Buffalo to the Wind River Reservation on behalf of the Shoshone Tribe. My dad is a retired fish and wildlife biologist, first of his family to, to get a, a degrees, get degrees. Uh, he was um, very influential in the management of our fisheries and wildlife here on the reservation because he was in a, a really unique position as a, as a tribal member who was also a federal employee because federal agencies have trust responsibility because of our, our treaties uh, to help tribes in making management decisions over uh, natural resources, particularly um, fisheries and wildlife. And so his career uh, was at the Lander Field Office uh, adjacent to the Wind River Indian Reservation. And he had a, uh, developed a very close uh, relationship with the tribes and had some uh, very contentious issues that they went through, but the result of of what his work is, is, is that tribal members now have access to our uh, historic ungulate species that were here prior to Lewis and Clark and managed in such a way that we can still subsist uh, off of those wildlife species for, for our food sources. And so uh, I kind of carried on some of his work in terms of bison, you know, um, growing up with him, I had a, a deeper understanding, I think about, and I was very fortunate to, to be able to spend a lot of time in the backcountry with, with dad because the, the Shoshone and Arapaho tribes here on the reservation have a history of conservation in that uh, they established the very first wilderness roadless area in 19... Um, 1938, 26 years before the Federal Wilderness Act. A lot of the language that's in the Wilderness Act actually came from the designation of our wilderness roadless area here on the reservation. Even even though it's not in the Federal Wilderness System, it is considered a Class II airshed and it's accessible by foot and horseback. And in that area, there's over 200 lakes and several hundred miles of rivers and streams that all feeds into the, the lower elevations of the Wind River drainage. This uh, wilderness area is critical habitat for our elk. It's also critical habitat for uh, many of the native trout species that are here. Um, and so growing up with that type of a background, um, I was very influenced as a youngster in um, make, having a lot of value in those those things, that lifestyle, that way of living. And hunting is, is still primarily how we we feed ourselves. And that's that's been a conservation success story in how we've managed our wildlife species. We're, we're nearly there with, with buffalo management. So as, as we restore buffalo back to our reservation as wildlife, eventually uh, on larger landscapes than we will have seven of the seven ungulates plus the predators that were here with some, when Lewis and Clark arrived in 1804. There's very few tribal land, tribal lands, reservation communities that uh, have had successful resource management in that way. And uh, so it really can set precedent, I think, for not only how buffalo are managed on tribal lands, but in, in a sense, down the road, how buffalo can be managed on public lands as well. We're, we're, we're further away from that conversation, but the, uh, you know, I feel very fortunate to have grown up here on the reservation and had a biologist father who's, uh, who exposed me to a lot of that stuff as a youngster. That's a, it's some good segues. And Jason, I, I know about how incredible some of that land is. I, I spent part of my childhood in Riverton, Wyoming, right next to where you are and, uh, spent a little time up on some of those, uh, lands that you speak of and pretty incredible country, pretty incredible place to grow up. You're lucky to have a father that cared about that stuff and, and got you out in that country. Some of the best country in our, in our, in our whole country, in our nation. Uh, yes, it is. 
tell us a little bit about your tribe and, and their history and, you know, what you feel like is, is worth sharing for folks. And, and sure. where Jason's talking about too, is I don't know if we've ever said this is Wyoming <laughs> for those who don't know. Uh, I think we talked about Riverton and, and, and Fort Washakie and the Wind River Reservation, but that's in, in central Wyoming. And, and I'll let you tell us a little bit about your tribe, Jason. Sure. So the Eastern Shoshone people are part of the Uto Aztecan band of the of speaking dialect that uh, comes from the south. So the the as well, if you think about the Comanches, they they are a sister tribe of the Shoshone tribe. But the the Utes, the Paiutes, uh, the Shoshone Bannock in Idaho. Uh, the Uto Aztecan dialect, and you hear Aztec in there, implies all the way uh, to the south to the Aztec people. And that's essentially the, the Numic, where the Numic branch of the Uto Aztecan dialect that goes to the, the south. So the Shoshone people have been here a very long time by the archaeological evidence here on our reservation. It's 30,000 years. And uh, I'm sorry, it's, it's 12 to 13,000 years. But our stories and things imply much longer than that, more like 30,000 years. And the uh, when uh, Lewis and Clark arrived in 1804, they had uh, brought with them or were being guided by Sacagawea. So Sacagawea, as a child, was abducted by likely the Crow and traded to their sister tribe, the Mandan Hadatsa people in what is now North Dakota. So when Lewis and Clark uh, came came west and needed a guide, they found Sacagawea. And she's uh, actually buried uh, within 100 yards of where I'm sitting right now. And Sacagawea uh, obviously led Lewis and Clark west and uh, was a significant to that to that journey likely you know that wouldn't have they wouldn't have been successful with without her but the Shoshone people been here a very long time uh, when the first reservation was established it was in 1863 during the really the the demise of the of the bison they were being decimated by then but in 1863 the federal government negotiated with the Shoshone tribe and and the first reservation was established at Fort Bridger and it established Shoshone reservation at 44 million acres there were no states then but it would have been half of Wyoming northern Colorado northern Utah eastern Idaho and so people really um recognized that the Shoshone tribe carried it had a vast territory the the treaty of 1863 established a 44 million acre reservation and that uh, only five years later was reduced to two two million acres. So we lost 42 million acres in a span wow. of, of five years. And that was largely because of, of conflict with the Oregon Trail, the Mormon Trail, the Santa Fe Trail, and all of these trails that converged through the Shoshone Territory. And the um, so with the land reduction, that really uh, meant that the tribe didn't have access to those food sources anymore. Those food sources uh, were, were, with the unregulated hunting, resulted in the extirpation of, of pronghorn antelope and bighorn sheep, and other species were in rapid decline. Uh, fast forward to 1984, uh, and the tribes implemented a game code, largely from the work of my dad uh, as a biologist. Because of those extirpated species and the reduction of those populations, then then management needed to be implemented. And the game code was highly controversial because you're telling Native American tribes that who have subsisted for millennia by hunting that they can no longer no longer hunt. And, but what happened, what, what they predicted would happen would, and that, that was that if you manage these species, you allow for reintroductions, then someday you're gonna have enough species to subsist upon again. 
as we did traditionally. And I remember being a youngster and, and going with my dad and capturing those pronghorn antelope in southern Wyoming and uh, and the bighorn sheep. We went to, to north north of the reservation, captured those animals, and we brought them back to the reservation and let them loose in their habitat. And I remember my dad telling me that we would be hunting pronghorn antelope in 10 years. I killed my first one eight years later, and I've killed one every year since. And so I, we actually have pronghorn antelope walking in our yard now. Uh, it's pretty incredible to 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 know that story, to 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 be a part of that. And and so you know, the hope is that someday buffalo will be the same. But for some reason, we're stuck in this paradigm of not recognizing buffalo as as wildlife because you don't go and get them from their habitat and put them in their new habitat. No, we, we, we have to fence them in. Uh, we have to treat them like cows. We have to ear tag them and round them up and do vaccinations. But we don't do that with any other wildlife species, but why do we do that with buffalo? And so there's a paradigm uh, that we're trying to change towards uh, recognizing these animals as, as wildlife. And for native people, for Shoshone people, for the Arapaho people that we share a reservation with, that buffalo was life's commissary. And culturally speaking, uh, it's it's central to who we are. Because the name for ourselves as Shoshone people is the Gwichandika, the, the buffalo eaters. We distinguished ourselves by the foods that we ate. So the salmon eaters are over the mountain in Idaho. Uh, there was a band of Shoshones that lived in the mountains, and they 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 subsisted entirely on bighorn sheep. We called them the Tukadikas, and we were the Gwichindikas. And so, buffalo eaters is who we are. That's our name for ourselves. And so, as uh, you know, our spirituality, our ceremonies that were outlawed up until 1978. It's only been 40 40 years uh, to legally practice those ceremonies again, they, they, you know, we lost a, a tremendous amount of knowledge and, uh, and culture with, with policies of the federal government. And so we're now in an era of revitalization. And as we bring that Buffalo back, we're, we're working not only on the ecological restoration component of a keystone species, but also the, the incredibly important cultural component of, uh, of bison restoration. And that is that we can revitalize and reconnect with this animal in a way that, that we haven't been able to for 130 years. Yeah, Jason, uh, you know, there's a lot of sad history there, but uh, I'm really happy to hear about the revitalization and, and both, you know, the wildlife and culturally and it's a really cool uh, story that we, we've got to turn it around and, and bring in those, those critters back to their rightful place. And that's a good segue to, to talk to us a little bit about you. You've touched on it a couple of times, but you know, your hunting and fishing traditions and, and some of the things you did and your, you know, the tribal traditions, your, your personal family traditions, how you do that now. I know you've talked to me a little bit about that before, but just touch on that a little, um, you know, one of the things we, we like to talk about is it's interesting different parts of the world, different people, not the world. We really only talk to, <laughs> to people in the United States, but uh, different parts of our country and, and whether it's the Southeast or the Northwest, you know, everybody kind of does things a little different. And uh, I'd be curious to hear a little bit of your stories and, and you know, how, how you came up and how your family does it. Yeah, I fortunately, well, because of the, the wilderness area and its accessibility by foot or horseback, you know, my dad early on in his career learned that he needed to, you know, uh, have to, you have to use horses to get back to that, that area. And so he, he kind of started out new in, in horse culture, but we've always, as Shoshone people, been uh, horse people. Um, after the Pueblo Revolt, our sister tribe, the Comanche, uh, brought horses to us. And the Shoshone people were, were largely responsible for the distribution of the horse to the northern tribes. And so the history of the horse within our people is there. But my dad himself, he had to learn 
uh, from scratch how to do some of those things and had a had a pretty pretty steep learning curve. Uh, he has a lot of pretty cool stories about how he had to learn how to pack horses into the backcountry. And um, by the time I was old enough, he kind of knew what he was doing. And uh, we would we would pack our uh, pack several horses and and go back to those two hundred lakes. And he would uh, do do scientific studies and gill netting and things to determine what fisheries were back there. Uh, because invasive fish were brought in and um, created some some interesting challenges. But right after we would be done doing this survey science work, uh, it would be hunting season. And so we would just load up the horses again and go back up into the mountains and camp again. And, um, and we'd have a base camp and we'd go back uh, into the backcountry and and find these big herds of elk and learn how to bugle them in and kill big bulls back there and then pack them out on our horses. So we'd spend two or three weeks, you know, doing, doing stuff with uh, the rivers and streams and lakes and then go spend another two or three weeks hunting elk in the fall time. But I had to get good grades in order to do that because I, he wouldn't let me miss, miss school unless I was doing well enough. So that was the incentive that I needed. He's a good dad. <laughs> to, to be able to go to go on those pack trips. And he uh he he retired in nineteen ninety seven and I always thought about, man, how am I gonna find a way to get back up into that backcountry again and get paid for it? So uh you know, hunting, fishing, you know, we, we really look forward to that hunting season. When I killed my first antelope, uh it was just him and him and I, and it was a special time because it was it was eight years after the reintroduction of antelope to the reservation, and we we still talk about that that hunt because I I was up on a rock and I was a little guy, uh, but I was shooting a two fifty seven Roberts and I hit the antelope and I it, the 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 recoil knocked me back off of a rock, and so I didn't know if I got it, so I was scrambling back up the rock to see. And uh, uh, this antelope, you know, he kind of went like this. And Dad said, "Yep, that's a lung shot," you know, and he fell over. And that uh, that antelope is 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 still. Uh, I got it mounted. It's not a big antelope, but it's just it's just for sentimental value. Got it mounted, and I've carried that thing all over the place for the last thirty years. You know, not well, not quite thirty years, but close. And um, those uh, types of stories. And and being able to fish, you know, one time we, we went to Alaska fishing for halibut and we had a bunch of these lures, the blue fox lures, too big for any of our lower trout streams. But we took a trip to the backcountry and we, we figured out, oh, let's take some of them blue fox lures that we were catching salmon on. And uh, we went back to one of these, an area called 20 Lakes. And, and 20 Lakes is known for having some big trout. And we were catching... Uh, catching them big trout on them salmon lures and you know to be able to to say we we're using the Alaskan salmon lures on our on our trout on our reservation in our backcountry was pretty cool and there's just one after another uh so you know the the fishing and hunting stories are we've got a lot of them and really um I think that we've always talked about having having an opportunity someday to be able to go out there and and harvest the buffalo and, um, you know, that's something that he's always said he wanted to see and witness before he's Jason, gone is, is to be able to do that. Yeah, well, that's great. We have a question about that in a minute, too. But I was going to ask you, is your hunting season, is the tribal hunting season the same as just the Wyoming hunting season? Or is there no, different regulations? Uh, different regulations we have our own so you know as as sovereign governments tribes have the the ability to to set our own seasons and bag limits uh for our wildlife species and so we we hunt antelope in in um september uh for a month and and then deer and elk are staggered up staggered open up in september bulls we only hunt for a month but we can hunt cows and calves through december 31st 
uh, and then that December 31st is the end of all all hunting. Then then we're you know into fishing season. Um, we have special tags for trophy uh, deer, and we have draws for moose and bighorn sheep, uh, and and a late season tag. But we uniquely we also have uh, ceremonial tags. So during the summer months, both tribes have our annual Sundance. And so the Sundancers uh, have access to uh, those ceremonial tags so that they can harvest meat for, for the ceremony and for the, to feed the families. So there's, uh, there's unique provisions within our tribal government because of our, our cultural ties that allow that type of thing. We uh, uh, opened up a season during COVID for, for uh, elders to uh, get access to deer meat too. And uh, so, yeah, there's a there's, uh, little bit different regulations and things for, for the tribes. But, again, uh, that trust responsibility that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has, uh, they do make, because of their, their surveys and the, the science, make recommendations to our Fish and Wildlife Management Agency. They make the recommendations that... This is your your estimated big game uh, numbers. This this is a certain number of tags that would uh, be beneficial for population, or or this this population is suffering a little bit, so issue less tags, that sort of thing. So it's all scientifically based, but there's that cultural component that you don't find in say the uh, non-Indian hunting regulations. Yeah. Thank you, and I know at least in my part of the country, I I don't think. Um, it's well understood um, by, by non-tribal hunters and anglers how uh, the tribal nations here set those regulations. Um, who, who makes the, the final decision on adopting those regulations when you get those recommendations? And do you have a separate commission or is it the, the overall tribal government? Um, how does that work? Um, it varies from reservation to reservation. Because, for instance, here at Wind River, we have two tribes, and each tribe is its own sovereign government. Not every reservation has that uh, situation. And some tribes are Indian Reorganization Act tribe. We call them IRA tribes. For instance, we are non-IRA. The Indian Reorganization Act encouraged tribes to adopt a form of government that mimicked the state and federal government. So some tribes that are IRA tribes have a have a president, vice president, branches of government, etc. We opted out of that. We didn't want to mimic the federal government or state government, so we <clears throat> maintained a quasi-traditional form of government where we have six elected representatives from each tribe, and then they make the day-to-day decisions. But the governing body is the governing is the council, and. Um, for here at Wind River, we have the Shoshone and Arapaho Tribal Fishing Game Department, which is the law enforcement arm of our wildlife and fisheries management. So they're they're law enforcement, but they're not associated with, say, Bureau of Indian Affairs. Um, and so the the U, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which is a federal agency because of their population estimates and things, will make recommendations to the Tribal Fishing Game Department about how many tags to issue, for instance. And so then they can, or they don't have to, follow those recommendations because of the sovereignty. Uh, and so that would be the, the how, the, how that um, filters down, I suppose. But it really ultimately lies with the leadership of our, our tribe because of the sovereignty. Um, the state has uh, little to no jurisdiction within the exterior boundaries of the reservation. So Jason, you know, you, you, we started getting here, but obviously a lot of what we want to talk about too is, is your, is your bison work. And, and I think a good way to start that is uh, talk about the import, the cultural importance uh, of, of bison to your tribe and and you know you, you touched on it just a bit but maybe if there's a way to kind of give us the broad overview of of what the bison meant sure um i was just having this conversation with my son yesterday because 
Um, we, we try to live simply. Uh, I don't have any running water or electricity by choice, but a lot of our people didn't have that choice. That's the way it was uh, because of economic hardship. But simplicity was a, was a, was a way to, to live closely with the earth. Uh, Native American people were never about uh, gaining possessions uh, or materialism. Um, living simply was, was what, what we did uh, and to some extent still, still do and encourage. The, uh, the buffalo was life's commissary. And I can't understate that enough because everything about our lives was the, the buffalo. It took, we, we lived in teepees, uh, mobile lodges, and it take uh, 16 to 18 hides to make a 20-foot teepee. Uh, prior to the horse, those teepees would have been more like 8 to 12 foot in diameter for being able to haul them. But once the horse arrived around 1680, then um, mobility became much easier and teepees got larger. So imagine a, a, a village of 20 teepees. That's over 320 buffalo in those teepees alone. Imagine before a time before pots and pans or roads or cell phones or TVs or even houses. There was no houses here. There was the animal economy, and there were the people that relied on the animals, and, and most importantly, the buffalo. Imagine how you would cook a meal for your village of, of 20 teepees. That could be 40, 50 people. How, how do you cook a meal? You do that with a buffalo stomach. And so the stomach of a buffalo would have been hung in such a way that you could put that fresh meat in there. You you'd harvest the tubers and vegetables and things from, from the pharmacy, the, the grocery store that's all around us. And you would put red hot stones into that stomach and it would boil the water and cook the food. And that's how you would cook your meal for that a number of people. And after you use that stomach a few times, you cut that up and you put it into the next stomach. And that's why you, the buffalo was con a continual supply of tools, kitchen items. The, the blood was coagulated and used. The, the dung was used for your, cook, your cooking fuel. The hair, of, of course, was either kept on or off the hide for making robes. And if you had a robe in the winter time was one of the most prized possessions because that could keep you warm uh, through the coldest nights of, of winter. Uh, the bones would have been used for tools like the top of the hump was a paintbrush. It's porous bone that, that you use to, to paint. The, the, the foot bones were used for teething toys uh, for babies. Uh, but melting down the hooves to make glue, making sleds out of the, the rib cage, or carving shovels from the scapula, or fish hooks from the scapula, uh, making awls and needles from, from the, the shin bones that are the strongest bones in the buffalo. Um, the, high, the, the, the skull itself is a ceremonial object. Um, the sweat lodges would have been covered with uh, 18 to 20 hides, uh, and that, that was a purification lodge that represents the buffalo itself. 28 ribs of, the, of red willow are stretched to, to uh, make build the frame uh, of the sweat lodge, and that buffalo skull sits out in front of the, the lodge on the mound from the dirt that was brought out of there. The last pole that goes in the sweat lodge represents the tail of the buffalo. And so everything about life had buffalo in it at one time. And today, there's only remnants here and there. And so as that buffalo was removed from, from our diet, 
it resulted in high rates of, of heart disease and diabetes and other health-related issues that we suffer today. Buffalo is uh, probably the most important meat, the highest in protein, lowest in cholesterol, essential minerals and nutrients that, all, that many other meats don't contain. Everything about that buffalo uh, is, is, is important to, to us, even today, even, with, even if, though it's been disconnected for 131 years, being able to relearn these things is, is incredibly important for our young people because our high rates of suicide, high rates of uh, teen-related pregnancy, high school dropout rate, all of these uh, are historical trauma. And so as we heal from this trauma, no better way to do that than bring back the most important component of our life ways, um, and that is buffalo. How that happens through educational opportunities and, and being present with buffalo uh, are all ways to, 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 to mend that, to heal that. We're not really encouraged so much to be proud of who we are as Indian people, as Shoshone or as Arapaho or Crow or Cheyenne, Lakota. We have to encourage our young people to be proud of those things. And um, the, the, uh, I think the opportunities for education and uh, teaching our young people about the history, and the history is sad. The history is, is, is depressing. It's hard to hear about. But it's essential to understand why we are in the way we are now and uh, and also where we're going. Because if we have that utmost respect for that buffalo, it's so important to us culturally, ceremonially, ecologically, then to treat them as wildlife is the best way to do that. Not to farm them, not to ranch them, ear tagging them, rounding them up. That's treating them essentially as a cow. Great. Well, well t- tell us, you know, we, I mean, what I know, and you and I've talked about this, and I know a little bit about your work, but, you know, you were a huge driver in bringing bison back to the Wind River Basin for the first time in 130 years, as you talked about. Can you walk us through that process a little? What did it take? What did you have to do? How did you, you know, get engaged with that? Um, and just kind of walk us down that path a bit, if you would. Well, um, I was kind of rambunctious as a teenager and, and kind of got myself into some trouble as a youngster. And when I graduated high school, my, my dad, he, he pretty, pretty much said, let's, um, let's just take a trip. And, uh, and he had already been to Africa a couple of times and he, he loved to photograph wildlife. And, and he had a couple of colleagues that over there with, with, with which to stay. And uh, so when I was 18, we, we took a trip to East Africa together. And that was uh, life-changing for me. Uh, we, we traveled around together for a month and went to various national parks, uh, Amboseli, Terengiri, uh, the Maasai Mara, uh, Serengeti, uh, Ngorongoro Crater, just some incredible places in East Africa. and. Um, at the Maasai Mara, we, we got to witness the, the wildebeest migration. And that was incredible because we, we, we drove for over 100 miles on dirt roads. And as far as you could see in every direction was, was wildebeest. And I mean, way, way off in the distance, just speckles. And one day we counted 88 hyenas. and But you see about 30 other species intermixed with with this migration impalas and gazelles and giraffes and zebras and whole host of animals but what was more unfathomable was that that's less than five percent of what the bison was here less than 200 years ago and to see the sheer number of wildebeest in that in 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 real life uh, and to think that that was less than 5% of what the buffalo was here blew me away. 
And so I wanted to know more about it. I actually stayed in East Africa for six more months on my own. Uh, my dad left me there uh, and I, I was able to travel around and, and find myself. Uh, so when I returned, I had a, a newfound appreciation for not only my home, uh, but who I was as a Shoshone man and, and where I'd come from. So I wanted to know much more. Uh, I became uh, much more focused uh, in, in my academics. I realized I needed to have uh, degrees in, in, in this work. So I, I formulated a plan to go to college and focus entirely on Buffalo restoration. So as an undergraduate, I, I wrote a draft management plan for, for what bison restoration could look like. I had some support here back home and um, we were able to pass a tribal resolution in 2009 to, su to support Buffalo restoration on behalf of the Shoshone tribe. And so uh, I, I, it allowed me to kind of continue with what I was doing. I, I wrote a proposal for an EPA star fellowship on improving community and ecological health by restoration of bison to the reservation. I was able to, I, I received that, that STAR Fellowship and also received an Alfred Peace Loan Foundation Fellowship to support my work in, uh, in my thesis, which was Cultural Plant Biodiversity and Relic Wallows and Tribal Bison Policy. And so uh, with that, I was able to team up, do contract work with National Wildlife Federation, the Shoshone Tribe, uh, designated me as the as the tribal buffalo representative to work on behalf of the Shoshone tribe in restoration. Uh, I think it was in 2012, the Shoshone tribe uh, allocated an area of land that was owned by the tribe towards uh, the buffalo restoration effort. And in 2016, we brought the first 10 from the national, uh, from the Neil Smith Wildlife Refuge in Iowa and then 2017, the National Bison Range, and then uh, five bulls from Fort Peck. We've had uh, over 10 calves born here since then, and we currently have 34 bison on behalf of the Shoshone tribe. Uh, the Northern Arapaho tribe helped to facilitate uh, an agreement with them as well to establish a small herd. So they now have 11 buffalo in the area that we hope to expand to. So the process uh, before COVID hit uh, was to implement or insert some language in our game code, the 1984 document, uh, to protect bison, um, create the, the necessary language in there to make it illegal to, to harvest them unless uh, specifically authorized, uh, and also allocate an area for expansion um, you know, I mentioned earlier that a uh, wildlife reintroduction should be easy. You take the wildlife from their habitat and you put them in their new habitat. But as we know, wildlife management is a lot less about managing wildlife as it is about managing people. And so with bison, we really have to grow this effort from the ground up. People have to have ownership in this, not only from the Shoshone tribe, but from the Arapaho tribe, because these buffalo are important to all of us here on this reservation. And I feel that buffalo is a way to bring our governments together in some way, form or fashion. Don't know how that looks yet, but if we can manage buffalo as wildlife under the auspices of uh, the tribal fish and game department, then, then we're one step closer to seeing those buffalo managed as wildlife and growing our population to a sustainable level where we can have a harvestable population uh, by our tribal members for sustenance, uh, but also for, for cultural use for our ceremonies, um, but also for educational opportunities. Like um, we have a program, five, five Buffalo Days. I'm trying to make it 365 Buffalo Days. Uh, a Buffalo Institute or a Buffalo culture school where we can bring students in to uh, learn and understand 
a lot more about uh, how important this buffalo is to us and really expose them to the history, um, the, the challenges, but, but also the opportunities moving forward. Uh, there's, there's a real opportunity to set precedent here and building that, that, that momentum and uh, the, the understanding of our people is critical to, to the happening. That's that's pretty amazing. Um, when when you talk about management of the of the buffalo there now, um, what does that day to day management look like? Um, is is it like moving them from range to range, uh, feeding? Um, how how does how do the mechanics of that work? Just letting the buffalo be buffalo. There's very little hands on things that happen. It essentially. Uh, we have uh, a guy that goes out there, Dennis, checks on him every day. He checks uh, the, the perimeter of the fence. He, you know, uses field glasses to see how many calves we have or uh, if there's an injured one, uh, you know, he's kind of the first one to know. I go out there periodically uh, once or twice a week, and, um, and it's usually for a tour, uh, people that want to see them. Or, or now it's a virtual tour, so we're out there taking pictures and putting into uh, things that we can share with folks. Um, there is no ear tagging, there is no roundups, there is no vaccinations because we want as, uh, as hands-off approach as possible. We also mimic a, a natural female to male sex ratio out there that mimics a more natural uh, setting the satellite bulls will tend to stay off by themselves. The main herd bull stays with the cows and calves. Um, but there's very little that, that has to happen. And the, the, that'll be even more so once we expand range because we're hoping to expand to an area that's 67,000 acres. And once it's that size, um, you know, you might have to look a couple days to find them. Um, but that that's really what what where we want to be uh, in terms What's of the area now jason what what type of scope are we looking at the 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 Shoshone tribes are on three hundred acres uh so we've almost uh, at our carrying capacity for that at um you know we can probably have eight or ten more buffalo, but after that uh we have to really definitely expand the range uh, we, we're working with an adjacent landowner to uh, uh, irrigate an upper section so that we can grow more forage for them we don't want to have to feed them but uh, on a limited land base again you have to so during the winter time uh, we do feed them uh, grass hay uh, which is uh, necessary unfortunately but uh, the Arapaho tribe across the river, uh, they're on about a thousand acres. And so the opportunity to expand the population there is, is, uh, is an opportunity that we're, we're kind of working towards. There's, there's likelihood that we can double the 300 acres that the Shoshone tribes land is on, Buffalo are on, uh, with an adjacent, uh, uh, grazing allotment. So there's, there's, a uh, just a few things that we're doing to try to try to really get to that 67,000 acres or even beyond that because 67,000 acres is, is much bigger and is likely in the nation one of the larger chunks of tribal land that Buffalo manages on managed on but but we have hundreds of thousands of acres uh, on, in the Wind River Mountains and the Alcrick Mountains on the reservation that are uh, critical or prime habitat, critical habitat for other wildlife, but prime habitat for bison. And but we have, we have issues that we need to deal with before we get to that point. We probably have fourteen thousand or more feral horses on the reservation, and all in areas that that are prime bison habitat. So there's challenges to you know bison restoration and management as wildlife that that really have to be addressed from the leadership uh 
you know, like on about that? Jason, one, one of the things we wanted to ask you about is, you know, what prevents bison from returning to lands? I mean, obviously there's a lot of people out there, tribes, other folks, hunters, different folks who want to see bison back on, you know, not, not just reservation lands, but a lot of public lands. Tell us, tell us a little bit about what the hurdles are. Yeah, I think uh, the main hurdle is is probably that paradigm shift, uh, recognizing that that bison, you know, when we go across Wyoming and we see pronghorn antelope, we don't say, oh, it must be a pronghorn antelope branch. But when we see buffalo, we do that. We don't see them as wildlife. Uh, we see them as a commodity. And so shifting from that paradigm uh, is, is probably the biggest challenge because it's a it's a it's a human thing, and we have to uh, change that from from through education. Um, but the next hurdle is 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 probably the the, hair, the horses. Um, BLM manages wild or feral horses and burros on public lands. On reservation lands, it's the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And BIA is a federal agency does not meet the needs of the tribes. There's very few instances of BIA being a benefit to tribal communities. No different in management of our horses. Bureau of Indian Affairs is not doing, not doing, they might be doing a little, but they're not doing what they need to, to get or solve the, the horse problem. So it's gonna have to come from within. Uh, probably local ranchers, uh, local horse people, maybe uh, rounding up some of them horses, and uh, it's a really contentious issue that we really don't know how to deal with yet. Uh, it's really not in the conversation the way that it needs to, and so we don't really know how that's going to happen uh, till we begin eating horses or or at least opening up a market to ship horse meat elsewhere, I, I don't uh, see a solution yet. And, and, and the other, you know, the solution many people have, which is uh, not, not appropriate either, is, is, is just removing them lethally. And so I hope that there's a culturally appropriate sound way that we can address that issue. Uh, but, you know, horse, horse recruitment is successful. And, uh, you know, I, I'm open to suggestions in, in terms of that. And that's a, that's a real challenge. That's a, that's a big one. That's probably the biggest one. Other than human. Yeah, talk about some of the attitudes, Jason. Some of the, the way people perceive it and 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 what what their issues are with it as far as not wanting them i think it's 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 really philosophical um i i think back to like my grandmas and grandpas a lot of our older folks who value things for the way they are uh not not for monetary gain um and and so I think about the system that was imposed upon Native people, and that was that you have to abandon your life ways and accept these new ones. And so, you know, as Native Americans were, were pushed onto reservations and the buffalo were eliminated, the, the federal government encouraged and promoted agriculture and, and livestock production over over what was already here, the wildlife. And so today we prioritize livestock and economic gain over the, the wildlife species. And, and that's colonization, that's, that's a, a, a colonial mindset. And so as, as we effectively decolonize our way of thinking as native people, we have to recognize that we have to challenge the status quo many times in that cattle ranching is not traditional. Uh, buffalo are. Um, 
growing alfalfa for livestock is is not traditional fishing and gathering natural foods is and so part of our own decolonization as native people is 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 a recognition of of a, of a clash of worldviews and the majority of Native American people did not adopt agriculture as a lifestyle, but the people who did have the run of the land. The farmer or the rancher who grazes their cattle on tribal land is the only one who benefits from that. But if we have buffalo out on the, on those public lands, on the tribal lands, every tribal member benefits from that. It's kind of like the water rights case in Wyoming. The longest running case in the history of Wyoming is who controls water on the reservation. The tribes advocated for in-stream flow to protect the fishery. The state of Wyoming argued that water is here for agriculture. And there was no agreement, no common ground found. Even though there's enough water for the fish and the and the farmer and rancher, the two were adamantly opposed and there was nothing ever really decided. This, the fish still suffer. Farmers and ranchers get all the water that they want. And so it's again, it's a clash of worldview. And we're finally in a time when Native American people can be Native American people without the persecution, without the challenge. Uh, but but we have to recognize when we're in a colonial mindset, when we're making colonial decisions, and and how we decolonize our way of thinking for cultural revitalization. Because how we see that fish, or how we see that water, or how we see that four-legged animal, uh, really is a challenge to ourselves about how we how we see our how we see ourselves as, as humanity and part of creation. Our ceremonies teach us that we're all related from the little bug uh, to, to, the, to the eagle, everything in between. We have a saying called Mutakuye Oyasin or um, in, in Bihini, there's, there's sayings that we have in, in all of our languages that recognize this, the, the, the connection that we have. It's, it's, it's all my relations. We're not talking about our human relations. We're talking about all of creation, that our connection is part of that. But we as society set ourselves above it uh, and, and we put monetary gain above all of our decisions. And we, forgot, we forget about who we are as human beings in our relation to creation. Thanks for sharing, Jason. You've, you've really enlightened me a little bit. I, I've known some about your work, but you, you've really given me more and I hope our listeners appreciate this. And, and we're going to ask you one more thing and, you know, we'll have to, we'll have to close her down here, but, you know, first off again, just, just thank you. And, 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 you know, a lot of us need to understand these stories and a lot of us need to understand the history. Um, and, you know, I, I really hope we get somewhere, uh, with a lot of the things you've touched on, you know, both, both bringing wildlife fully and, 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 you know, integrally back into all of our lands and getting the bison back on the land, but, you know, also culturally, I think there's a lot we can learn. Um, but just tell us real quick, I guess, is, <laughs> as quick as this can be, um, what do you ultimately see out of, the, out of the bison restoration program? Or if you, know, if you could wave your magic wand tomorrow and have it how you'd like to see it in the end, uh, what, what would it look like? Oh, that's a tough question. Uh... I foresee a, a day when I can go hunting with my kids, my grandkids, and harvest the buffalo. And I en en envision somewhat a return back to simplicity. And I think that 
you know, there's a reason for everything. We, we, we talk about as native people that every, for every illness, for every problem, there is a, a plant or there is a medicine out there for it. And there's a reason all these things happen. And in the ceremonies that I attend, uh, the, the elder, the, the, the spiritual people tell me that this COVID is, is here to remind us human beings to slow down. That, that, that we've been going, we've been moving too fast. That we've forgotten how to be human beings. And so I think about that quite often in that a return to simplicity is, is virtuous. And for me, that's understanding more about how to identify foods and medicines that are around me. Or how can I make uh, tools out of the bones that I, that I got from this buffalo? Um, I, I think that in the future, you know, I want to I want to be in a place where uh, I have access to these things. Clean water. There was a time when when before cows, when we could drink from the rivers and streams right here, where I where I am, but because of of you know, germs that brought in by, by domestic livestock, those that we can't do that anymore. But I, I like to, I like to envision a time of simplicity when, when I can, when I don't have to work for money, but I can, but I can spend my time where I want to be and who I want to be with my family, but I can go hunting or I can go fishing, uh, or I can drink water out of those those streams and and springs again. You know that that's that's what I hope for. I it, it's idealistic because in in what has happened in this country, we've we've plowed it up and paved it over. And there's so many people now that that type of a lifestyle is unforeseeable for millions that that's not even going to be a reality for a lot of people fortunately for me and because of the reservation and because of uh, our leadership that has protected this place from that it'll be here and and i i'm scared for what we're leaving for our children for our grandchildren and, and as native people, they made decisions thinking about seven generations down the road. And we can barely think about next year, let alone seven generations from us, from us now and the decisions that we make, the trash that we produce, the, 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 the fuel that we consume, uh, the distances we travel, the, the, the things that we do that are detriment to the land that we walk on as mother earth, uh, what we do to her, we do to ourselves. And, and it's, it's scary to think of what we're doing on the planet as a people, humans, humans around the planet, what we're doing to this place. It's fearful for, it makes me fearful for the future, but hopeful in that I can at least show my own children a little bit of what I learned. Well, bringing bison back is certainly a step in the right direction, Jason. And thanks for your perspective and and your wisdom. It's always really great to talk to you and learn more about what you're up to and your traditions and the hard work you've done to, to get bison back, back where they belong. So With that, we'll uh, we'll ask you if you want to leave us with any any final words, and we'll sign off. You know, I think about oftentimes how fortunate I am to be able to work for the National Wildlife Federation, and you know, I think of uh, 
the the part of of NWF that is connecting people in nature, and that's really what this is all about. Because as humanity, we've separated ourselves from nature, and in doing so, we've forgotten our humanity. And so, I'm just very thankful to work for an organization that wants to understand this people and nature component. Because Native people, Native Americans, they know what that's about, and and it's and it's in it's in those communities. And so, I'm really glad to see NWF forming a, a national strategy in partnering and working with tribes as sovereign governments and, and partnering in conservation because really this work is really critical to to humanity helping people find their way back to to that plant or that little animal or the bird or four-legged uh and and really bringing back that connection so um i just commend you guys keep up the good work and keep spreading that message and uh, thanks for all you're doing We are NWF Outdoors.